0: Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative podcast. The podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are, how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? My guest today is Sejal Patel an MIT-trained architect, technologist, and the co-founder and chief technology officer at Digital Blue Foam. Sigel's past work bridges across the scales of software, materials, and cities, often mashing up industrial technologies in new and provocative collaborations. From a bartending system using KUKA robots for Google I.O., to developing an award-winning Mars 3D printing concept for NASA, to designing a fleet of emotion-sensing robots for the Shenzhen Biennale in 2019. Sejal was a founding professor at the Dubai Institute of Design and Innovation, the D-I-D-I, the first design university to open in the UAE, where he pioneered a new format of combinatorial design education, where students are trained in two different design disciplines simultaneously. Before joining the D-I-D-I, Sejal was a researcher with the SUTD Digital Design and Manufacturing and Design Centre in Singapore where he invented an award-winning software for multi-material 3D printing. Since 2013, Seigel has coordinated Code Kitchen, an ongoing series of peer-to-peer learning labs and workshops to bridge emerging technology and design practices. Today, Seigel is concentrating 100% of his time as the co-founder and CTO of Digital Blue Foam, an architectural software startup. Visual Blue Foam's mission is to create the algorithms, interfaces, and operating systems to accelerate the decarbonization of the building industry. In his free time, Sejal loves to oil paint and spend quality time with his wife and daughter. In our podcast today, Sejal and I talk about the importance of urban density, how two key metrics are the most important way to drive low-carbon cities, and how to scale design strategies at an urban level to reduce the carbon footprint of city dwellers. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, AJL. You're doing some really cool work in a number of different but very current areas. Software design, materials research, 3D printing, urban design, robot design, design education, and of course, sustainability. So maybe we should start off by having you sketch out for listeners what you're currently doing and how it's different or unique in the context of what others are doing in the same space.
1: Sure, Craig. My background is in, in architecture and software design. And currently I'm working as a CTO and co-founder of a startup. We're building sustainability tools for the built environment. But where, where this really comes from is an observation that there's really, when it comes to sustainability, there's kind of two extremes. Like on one hand, you have greenwashing where people are just making designs green, but not really having metrics or anything to back it up. It's just pure marketing, but then on the other side, and also I have been an academic for six years. So what I see is that there's this amazing research happening in academia. People are doing amazing research. And the output of it at the end of the day is just like a paper in a journal that people read, but nothing ever happens. And so where I feel a lot of inspiration and passion is to actually make this happen. So to take these really groundbreaking work that's happening in academia and translating into tools and platforms that people can use designers can use to inform and get and get the sort of like evidence for the design process to make it more sustainable so it's not just greenwashing it's something backed up and something that you can make an argument for like why this should be built on in a very objective way
0: interesting There, are the sort of two poles of greenwashing and amazing research but neither of them were really producing results because they weren't being put into practice greenwashing was ineffectual and the academic paper didn't get any eyes. So really what you're looking at doing is being effective. So maybe talk a little bit more about the effectiveness. What kind of things are you are doing that has that effectiveness?
1: So, like I said, my background's in architecture, but I've switched over to technology and the real difference between being an architect and a technologist is when you're an architect, and, and I have the deepest respect for architects, like Craig, I know you're an architect, I really respect you, but the work of an architect, despite all their skills, despite all their intelligence, it's not, it's not scalable. You do a project, you spend maybe 10 years on it, and then you start again, you start over from scratch, where really the amazing thing about being involved with technology is that you can develop a product that people all over the world can use and you can keep improving on it. So you can have version one, version two. And so something that can really scale and also is evolving over time to get better. So I I think in terms of trying to make an impact, that's where where I I find, at at least for me, that's where we can make some results happen.
0: I I think that's a very powerful insight because really our architects are creating prototypes every time. I mean, I, I think what, Many architects, good architects, think they're doing is coming up with very smart solutions to solve problems, but also create something that is artistic and 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 has merit, both aesthetic merit and functional merit. But the chance of that building, and typically it's a building or space, being replicated is almost zero. Like it's it's they're one ofs, so they. They don't scale. You're right. So I, I guess there are some design types, um, residential, multi unit residential and stuff that is somewhat scalable. But you're right. Software has the potential to scale infinitely. So if it has a little bit of impact, that can be scaled over millions and millions of people using it and therefore have huge power. Yeah. We've had a, a few conversations in the past about the work you're doing on the 15-minute city. And I know sustainable and sustainable designer are, are one of your key areas of focus. So why don't you talk about your interest in sustainability and how it became so important to what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, so I think every designer has some interest in sustainability, at least since I was a student. And I just imagine that every student has some interest in sustainability.
0: By the way, for context, how long ago were you a student?
1: Seven years ago, I graduated my uh, master's but I was very fortunate. I I had some really amazing experiences as a graduate student. I actually got the opportunity to travel quite a bit. And one experience that was very profound is I got to go to Chongqing in China, which many people in North America have never heard of this place, but it's actually the largest city in the world. It has 40 million inhabitants. And so when we were there, in this context, they were building 300 high-rise buildings a month. If you think about Toronto, Craig, I don't know how many high-rises get built in Toronto per year, maybe like 20.
0: Yeah, that's and, and, and Toronto is considered a North America to have the mo- most cranes yeah. going up in North America right now.
1: Toronto is the biggest, yeah. But you're
0: right, it's about it's about 20-ish or so.
1: Yeah, so the pace of construction is just mind-boggling to the mind of a North American. And the sort of feeling about these projects is that this is just a step forward that people living in the city, they're becoming more affluent. They're getting better jobs. They're coming into the middle class. So what they were constructing or what they are still constructing, this is just a temporary solution. In 20 years, they're just going to tear it down and build something new.
0: And And is that the assumption that they're built to be taken down in 20 years? or that's that's just but
1: yeah this is part of the this is the economic model and also if you're a developer and you buy land you have to develop it within 18 months if you don't develop it within 18 months the government takes it back so they're under tremendous pressure to just build something and so what happens is the same building concrete and steel gets replicated it's not based on the context it just gets like cloned like like a stamp and it's just, uh, you know, this is an amazing opportunity to do something as an architect, and it's, it's been totally wasted.
0: So it's one area where architecture is scalable. I mean, the prototype yeah. does serve as a model for those buildings then.
1: Yeah, like something really amazing could be created. And it's just like to live in this type of place where the kind of city experience is very almost like desolate right? There's no sort of like urban experience or variety. For me, it's very, very, uh, it was very shocking and very profound.
0: Yeah. I've I've found a number of those, I've I've traveled through China and it struck me that it was similar to Dubai where you have instant, you know, ad water cities immediately growing out of the ground, but the ground context is, or was ignored. And the sort of how all the things that make a city other than commercial space and residential space are provided to make a whole city seems not to be part of the solution there. Yeah. And uh, it maybe it's it will be knitted in later it will evolve. But it 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 feels like a city that's not cities that aren't quite cities yet.
1: Yeah. I was actually talking to one of my my colleagues former colleagues from the university here in Singapore and she was attaching sensors on uh, people like walking around social housing projects. And you could actually track people's like stress and emotions walking around. And one of the things they were looking at is just like visual variety, like diversity, these things actually have an impact on how people feel. And so, like just like backing up into like the idea of sustainability, you know, density plays a big role in this. And we we have a choice, like, can we do density well or density in a very poor way, where people don't want to embrace density
0: too. Yeah, density is, I want to talk with you about density. It's a, it's a really important way of reducing per capita carbon emissions. Yeah. But as someone quipped, um, it's not how dense you make a city, it's how you make it dense. That's so important. So we should, we should chat about density. But tell me more about sustainability we started off by looking at the 15-minute city that we are conversation. What are you interested in right now? Like, How does the study of those cities tie into what you're doing?
1: So so basically, uh, what we look at in our company, just to make things very clear, is at the macro level, there's basically two things we can look at. And one is at the urban scale, and one is at the building scale. So at the building scale, we look at how can we reduce the amount of energy that's used per square meter per year to hundred kilowatt hours. So if we can do that, if we can reduce the kind of energy uses in buildings to that, then the rest can be supplied by renewables and we can go carbon zero, which is really amazing. And, and we can quantify this. So this is, this is very, very positive it's something we can that's do. a
0: good number too I mean I, I'm finding in RFPs right now for institutional buildings like universities and colleges that 100 kilowatt hours per meter squared is the benchmark that that they're looking for because they do know that it, first of all it's not easy to get there but it's doable and it does allow you then to reduce your operating energy and therefore carbon significantly and then embodied carbon takes over as a big question.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so totally. So in, in Singapore, buildings are getting the green mark and then their energy use is like 300 or 200 kilowatt hours per year. And so they're getting points for things that are like inconsequential and it, you know in, in a way it is it's like greenwashing. So I think I think this like 100 kilowatt hour mark is really clear targets we came for that a lot of, and you, can measure, we, you, can, yeah, you can measure it you can measure it
0: yeah and you can model it from the very outset
1: yeah so, so and, and it's really tied to just kind of fundamental things about how much glazing you have what's the orientation of the building what's your like volume to surface area ratio right so fundamental things so that's that's at the building scale but then at the urban scale so at the building scale our metric is 100 kilowatt hours per meter squared per year at the urban scale it's a 15 minute city and so we really love this metric because it ties into this idea that what if we create, instead of having CBDs, because the whole rage, I guess, for the last like 20, 30 years was to build like a CBD in the city and everyone is a commuter. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're finding a- and now- And th- that went
0: along yeah. with the suburb, right? They were sort yeah. of two pieces of the puzzle.
1: So, so now, now it's a total shift- it doesn't work. To this idea of a 15-minute city where you look at the neighborhood- You look at many neighborhoods as the kind of fundamental unit of a city, and you give people who live there all the amenities to sustain life, to sustain a joyful life within a 15-minute walking distance. So parks, restaurants, place of work, schools, hospitals, nature, all of those things. And so we're talking about not just density, but also urban diversity, which is very important. And I think 15-minute walk, I think it's it's a thing that everyone can understand. It's very easy to understand the power of that. Yeah, so those are our two metrics. I think there's so many metrics you could look at, but just to have two that are very clear related to decarbonization.
0: Yeah, I was thinking those are two very smart metrics because the 100 kilowatt hours per meter squared allows a lot of different design strategies to accomplish it. And so different teams, different developers, different owners of buildings can approach it in different ways, but they're all ultimately will get to that point. And so it's a very powerful tool to measure the energy and therefore the carbon. So that that dimension of sustainability. And then I really like the 15 minute city because First of all, it's a catchy title. People can remember yeah, it. Yeah. Um, a meme is important for success, I think. But yeah, yeah. it also gives you something you can talk about in a way that can be measured. You can measure it by people literally physically walking to those various places. And then, yes, tick, you've got to park within 15 minutes. Tick, you can walk to work. Yeah. So you're doing work on how to measure it. Quantify it real-time, post-facto? Like, Tell me a little bit more. Tell listeners more about how you're working on that.
1: One part of our platform uh, looks at different APIs.
0: For people that aren't computer people, what's an API?
1: Okay, so we built this tool to design urban developments and buildings. And it's online. And one of the powers of that is that we can connect to different APIs. So, you know, when you're using Uber or like Google maps, you're not looking up in a book, like map information. This is just online and it's retrieved based on a location. So this is what an API does. And so what we do is actually like, in a way it's like very simple, but I think very powerful because to the best of my knowledge, we are the first people to do this and I'm surprised that we are, but we're, we're able to just take in all of this information about different places around a location. We can run an analysis called an isochrome, which is a sort of like uh, shape, like what is the kind of shape that from that's a created you, by
0: going fifteen minutes to these yeah, within things. a
1: 15 minute shape yeah. and then we just analyze what's in there.
0: We should probably get a diagram or picture of one of those isochromes and put it in the show notes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah we can we can definitely. yeah, like when we developed this new feature, we did a lot of research on what has been done and people just talk about the idea of fifteen minute city in a very abstract way, like in the abstract or as a conceptual idea. And we didn't, like the
0: walkable city. Yeah. Yeah. So there's or the complete communities, right? It's very, yeah. very abstract.
1: Or, or there's a diagram, right? But there's no like objective measure that someone has come up with. Yeah. And like, fair enough. Maybe what is a 15 minute city in Toronto is very different than in Barcelona because the climate is different. But what we tried to do is just take the first step. Let's just try. And even with this, I think it's very profound just to even see like what's what's in the site, like what's what's in the location around a project and try to give it a score. And obviously the next step though is like when you can s- score the neighborhood where you're doing a, a new project, that means that when you develop a design, you can also look at how much have you improved that neighborhood after you've added your piece. Or you can also say, okay. So when you
0: say score, the score is based on how many of the characteristics or parameters that you're setting up as are required for a 15 minute city. Like there's a list of the various things that you should be able to access. Yeah. And then the score is how many of those can be accessed from a person at their residence in 15 minutes.
1: Exactly. But then there's some like tricks we do. So if something's within five minutes it gets a higher weight. So if things are within five minutes, ah. you even get like a bonus on that.
0: Right. So there, there's an end up, there's some sort of aggregated score at the end. For, yeah. yeah. For, and do you measure it by locations in a city or residences, individuals, where people live and where they go? How, what's the sort of logic <laughs> there?
1: Right now, right now, it's it's just by location. So the location would be the location of the project. Something we also are looking at is say, uh, we have a set of like housing developments and offices, and we generate isochromes at each location, and then we find the meeting points. So this is something we're looking at. We don't have it yet, but this is something we've also thought about. So finding like the meeting point between two places, what's the shared 15 minute space? And the, the
0: secret sauce here for you guys is that you're able to pull the, required information about where these things are from things that are already available on the internet? Uh, like, is it social media or is it tracking maps? Like what gets pulled in order to make those determinations of whether you're not, you're ticking the boxes?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's a combination of maps and social media, depending on the location. So for instance, I don't know if you ever heard of Foursquare. Foursquare is very popular in some cities, but not in others or like Twitter is very popular in some countries, but using these different social media, we can see where people are checking in, what are popular locations, what's their geolocation. And so that's where we get the kind of places information. And then we use the maps to generate these isochromes because we are looking at the road networks and the topography and the building footprints. And so all this plays a role in like, what's that 15 minute distance, but Like just to back up, like I I think I think what we did, it's not like super complicated. I think we're just the first to to try to do this in a way and try to give it a score because it it seemed like no one's everyone's been able to talk about it in the abstract, but no one's taken a step like here's a way of scoring a 15-minute city in an objective way. And so I'm like I'm interested in the conversation. Like, is the way we we did it? How can we improve on it? How can we make it more meaningful based on like, even like a climate, like a cold weather climate, like maybe you don't want a 15 minute city, like in Toronto in the winter, you probably want a five minute city, right? And and even in Singapore too, where it's like very humid and hot, probably having a shaded walkway that should play a role in what is accessible. Because if you look at the way people walk here, people will avoid walking in places where there's no protection from the sun. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's so much work to be done on this.
0: It's a 15 minute habitable uh, uh, where you can walk with reasonable comfort. Yeah. Does the software you're developing actually can be, I am assuming it's AI, where it can learn what those things are, or you program in what those are and that measures it.
1: It, It's something we're looking into as the next step of this. So I I don't know. Have you, have you been to Singapore before?
0: No, I haven't. It's it's. So if, I'm, if I'm, walk, I'm going there. I'm I'm going to be speaking okay. in Singapore this this fall.
1: So if if you walk somewhere without any shade, uh, within five minutes, your whole shirt will be just like soaked so- in sweat. Yeah. So in Canada, you never think like this is the thing, but you do in the um, middle of
0: summer. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's too hot in the yeah. summer and too cold in the winter. Well, how do you see this? You, we talked about scaling before. One of the problems yeah. of architecture is not being able to scale. So how does this scale? not so much as the ability for anyone to use it, but how do you get buy-in from cities? Who are the customers that want to buy this? Is it cities that want to say to the community of builders, developers, designers, we want a 15-minute city, and we're going to be using this software in order to confirm how effective your development is in getting there.
1: We just launched this feature in the last month, but basically everyone, we showed it to you. they're like very interested. Any sort of like architect, planner, uh, academic, city official, like everyone's like really interested because I think I think this is much more engaging and understandable than say talking about like AI, which seemed very scary and like cold and uh, suspicious, right? So I feel like everyone has something to say about like, what is a 15 minute city? But surprisingly the biggest group that's seen an interest in this is, is academics. Like uh, universities that are teaching design love this thing because it basically gets the students thinking about their urban analysis in a much more sophisticated way from the get-go. So we've we've had a really great uh, response from universities. I think trying to convince a city to take this on, they should, but they have their own data. They have their own proprietary data, and this is a challenge that we're finding. And not, not all cities want to share it.
0: They do have their own data, but I think one of the things f- from my looking at what you're doing and um, our conversations before that struck me as very powerful about it was that it's very flexible and you can do it in real time very quickly. So yeah. you can take a point in a city and look at the characteristics that will score on the 15 minute city, um, you know, score of benchmark scores. By just plugging it in and, and, and asking all the information that you're gathering from from web and from maps and so forth to give you the score. So yeah. that's not possible right now. We, we can't do that really quickly. We can do it, but it will take people crunching literally over maps and GIS and so yeah. forth. Like it's a very a, a time intensive project.
1: So we like uh, we presented this to a professor and she said, this is almost like too fast. This is too easy. <laughs> that's right? a, like, good, what's that's a good this? problem to
0: have. <laughs> that's typical of an academic saying it's too easy, by the yeah, way. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I agree with you. Like already just to make it simple to work everywhere. Like, this is a, an amazing step forward. But to get like, like what I was saying, like we want to look at like shade or like habitable space. Like we need more data. We can make it more intelligent. But what we've done is we've just taken the first step forward. And we hope this starts a dialogue and people give us feedback and we can learn from this and we can improve on this feature for our platform because we we really are excited about this one. And we really think it makes a difference just to see some sort of like evidence because you just talk about it as an architect or as a a student or like a city. You talk about how you want to have a 15-minute city, but... How do you have the evidence to, to
0: back it up? How do you have the evidence? Yeah. Well, I, there's a lot of questions I want to ask you today, and but I, I really am enjoying diving into the details of this. One yeah. of the things that, that strikes me, and you were just mentioning it earlier about Singapore and, and being hot and Toronto being cold, is <laughs> it, it yeah. may be that there's like, it, it's parametric in the sense for cold climate cities. You know, yeah. imagine if you're in Denmark or Sweden or Toronto, there's going to be a whole bunch of parameters that won't exist in that way, yeah. In in, a, in an equatorial city, so it's like, what is a 15-minute city in equatorial zones versus northern hemisphere or, or deep southern hemisphere? Yeah. And and maybe it's partly latitude, it's partly some of the weather conditions, the climate conditions. Yeah. And then there's an interesting question because we're talking about climate change. Yeah. We don't have. A static situation anymore with climate, right? You're not designing for the past; you're designing for the future, and the future is changing. Yeah. Does climate get register in this now, or will it?
1: I, I mean, that's a very interesting question.
0: <laughs> it should.
1: I, th- I think. I, th- I think. At least, at least in Singapore, I think a couple of things people are worried about here. The first is the heat island effect. So a lot of the CBD. Was conceived like with a kind of like 1970s thinking around design. So you just have these large swaths of like concrete jungle. And in Singapore, actually, like the downtown is seven degrees hotter than the heartland of Singapore. That, seven degrees. That's,
0: that's not abnormal. It's it's a bit higher. Typically in North America, cities are five degrees hotter than the than yeah. the uh, regional area around them
1: in north america the average temperature is not 32 degrees
0: no i mean it makes a big for, it makes a big difference year. like when, when you're when you start to get to yeah. higher temperatures that that cause health problems then all of a sudden that five or that seven degrees is very yeah. very significant
1: but even here the big fear is around like flooding flash flooding and and even like i moved away from singapore for three years and then i just moved back this year and even like now and you know maybe i'm just imagining it but it, it just seemed much worse the storms that i'm, I'm seeing here, the this way it's like flooding, and so they, these are like kind of the two things: the heat island effect and this uh, flash flooding. And so, so like topography and all the things; these things will play a part.
0: So, um, yeah, I mean, this is a good segue to talk about climate change. Um, yeah. And and it strikes me that the 15-minute city is clearly going to have to take into account those things. 15 minutes of being able to walk in an area that's safe. Um, and, and what about 15 minutes when there's flash flooding? Like there yeah. may be.
1: Have you been to Venice? Have you been to Venice?
0: Yes. Yes, I have.
1: Have you been during the, the floods? Aqua, Aqua Alta? Alta? Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: A minor part of it, not a major okay. Aqua Alta, yeah. but it's getting yeah. worse and worse. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's, it's looks like it's not going to be long before the city has to be abandoned.
1: That's terrible.
0: I'm teaching a course at UFT right now in sea level rise adaptation And I think the poor students are really depressed. I mean, it's only the second day of classes and and they're already looking at the world and plugging cities into uh, Climate Central's map for um, sea level rise. And so many cities around the world are going to be really, really seriously affected by sea level rise. That doesn't even take into account flash flooding from severe weather events, right? Tell me, are you working on any software or any programs, APIs, whatever, that are going to look at climate change adaptation or mitigation, how we measure it, how bad it's becoming. One of the problems is it's boiling the frog slowly, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that's acute. It just, it sort of feels like it's slow and it's hard for people's attention to be focused on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think like two things, like before, I would just like change, change the channel, when I see something about like uh, species going extinct, or like sea level rise, you know, it's very depressing. But but on the other hand, like, and I, I just kind of changed my mindset in the, in the last week. As architects, we were working in the perfect profession to make a difference here because if we talk about decarbonization, we're part of the problem. We're part of the building industry, and so we can actually be part of the solution too. To mitigating the harm that's
0: being caused. Well, let's talk a bit about that. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned from your work in your role, both as an architect and as a technology designer, even though you said you've really switched over being an architect, but you have those architectural genes and and training about how to increase both awareness of these key issues related to climate change, as well as how to limit and adapt to it. So what are some of the things... What are your perspectives or lessons learned from what you're doing now that might actually form what other designers, engineers, and architects are doing?
1: I think just in terms of like building a product, kind of our our design approach is to make these metrics and these evidence jump out to you. Like almost like say if you're going to pick fruit from a, uh, like a supermarket, like which one is the ripest? We want to make it super clear. What is the best performing design that you've created, Right. And I think if you look at engineering software, it's not created from the perspective of a, of a design or of a user experience. It's very powerful, but very complicated to use. And someone who, who might be interested in the results is not necessarily the person who's like producing the simulation.
0: Are you referring to energy simulation or what, what kind of, when you say software?
1: Yeah, like any, any sort of like energy simulation, carbon calculation and BIM, like all these plugins. Yeah, like CFD, right? It's it very impressive. It's very intimidating. But then, you know, it, it's one thing to have, like, data. But w- what's the insight that we get from it? Because everyone's interested. Everyone is responsible for the kind of sustainability of the project. Everyone wants to make the project to perform well. And they want it to be sustainable. But we need to have, like, insights. It's not enough just to have data or information. And right now, we're kind of, like, in this information overload situation. And so... I think our approach to, to all this stuff is it's, it's, it's just fundamental. It's just like, how do we tell stories? How can we use technology to tell stories, to give insight visually, or just like making it super clear what's the best performing design.
0: So what are your thoughts on how to do that now? Are you, are you looking at developing some sort of algorithms to help make Clarify that. Like we talked about, the hundred kilowatt hours per meter squared and the fifteen minute city; yeah, those are yeah, yeah. two nice ways to get a really fast idea about buildings and yeah, cities. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. What What are you thinking on on how to tell stories about what the building design is?
1: So this, this is just like a design principle that we apply through through the entire platform. So so we have the fifteen minute city visualization. It's very anyone can use it. It's very fast, very direct. But then in terms of the energy analysis daylighting, coming soon CFD, we, we want to make it very clear. So we, we, what we see is that it's always like, you get this really like beautiful, like heat map from the software, but what's the insight that comes from it? So we're very critical on our team. I'll admit, like, we're not all the way there, but it's definitely, we're, that's the self-criticism we have is how can we not just make it like a beautiful heat map, but actually what is the, tell the user, what is the insight or what does it mean? So one thing, Craig. Do you, do you know about uh, daylight autonomy?
0: No. What's daylight autonomy?
1: So it, it's a scoring system where you can check based on the glazing of a building what's its dependency on electrical lighting. So, like, basically, the idea is like if if you have glazing on.
0: Oh, I see. Daylight autonomy meaning can do you need can you, uh, can you use daylight as your primary? Yeah. Le- uh, and and, yeah. and if you didn't have any electricity, you could still have light.
1: Yeah. So, you know, then you get into things like, okay, if I put glazing on like the west side or the south side, it's like, where do I put it? I can't put glazing everywhere. That's bad for my insulation. So where can I optimize it?
0: Right. So there's a, there's a tension between energy loss and daylight in.
1: Yeah. So it's it's fantastic. But then we, we have the critique on our team, right? Like, okay, the daylight autonomy scores 70, you know? Okay. Is that good? What does that mean? Is that acceptable?
0: And I would think tracking that score yeah. as a, I, I guess it's a, is it a percentage of what it's a hundred percent is totally autonomous? Yeah, a
1: hundred percent is totally autonomous.
0: And so seventy is seventy percent autonomous.
1: Yeah, but it also depends on the use. So like a school might be okay, like a computer chip factory, unacceptable. Like reading, like probably pretty good. So it depends also on the
0: use. On the use. Yeah. So, so I'm thinking if you run that score up against the Energy score, the 100 kilowatt hours per meter squared. Like, if you take that as a standard, say it must be this, then you're trying to maximize daylight autonomy. Yeah. But this is not a score, or maybe it's a score to how close are you to 100 kilowatt hours per meter squared?
1: Yeah. This is the vision, this is the aim to bring this together. So it's
0: step-by-step. So that will be the next interview. Once you once you have that south, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: We were very excited about the daylight autonomy because it's just a super clear metric and it's very relatable. Like, okay, like I could read, but maybe if I wanna do, I don't know.
0: This is very interesting because one of the challenges and, and, and one of the big, I was gonna say fads, but that's maybe too harsh a word. But one of the big things right now in North America is Passive House. Yeah. And Passive House relies on heavily insulated walls, very tight seals, a controlled air in and out, and reducing the amount of area for glazing. And one of the criticisms is you're just not getting enough glazing in the house. It's yeah. too dark. It's, there's not enough view. And so I think it's it would be very good measure of that the autonomy figure sort of steps in to say, hey, like. You may be doing this, but you've got to look at that daylight as being something that isn't something that can yeah. be abandoned simply to reduce the, the um, energy loss, right?
1: And also, right, like, we're not going to live in buildings without windows. Like, there needs to be some joy in architecture and in life. So so there still needs to be design. We still have to make places that people want to live in. So we can't totally go to this engineering extreme, at least in my opinion. So it's all about trade-offs, but also understanding what's the use, what's the purpose, One thing we see here in in, uh, Southeast Asia in Singapore and Hong Kong specifically is there's a uh, correlation between air conditioning and the idea of like being wealthy and affluent. So if you go into shopping malls, the temperature is like 15 degrees Celsius all the time. And it's it's not based on anything. It's just so that when people walk in, they can feel very cool. So they know it, it costs a lot. And something as a North American, you would never think like that is the thing, but here it's, it's totally associated with social status and without air conditioning, uh, you're low so- social status here. Mm. And so th- these are things that are going to be very hard to change, actually. Hard
0: to change. Yeah. Or how to get the effect of air conditioning without the energy loss, right? Yeah. Yeah. How to give people that pleasure. But if you take away the cost of it, then it's no longer a social status, right? Yeah. Right. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the 21st Century Imperative podcast. We've certainly enjoyed producing it. As you know, 21st Century is a not-for-profit venture, but we still have production costs. So to help cover these costs, we've launched a new online store with all proceeds going to cover production. And we have some great products for you. We have organic fair trade t-shirts and hoodies, as well as non-toxic BPA-free coffee containers, all with great graphics. So, if you like the podcast, please think about helping us out by buying a t shirt, hoodie, or mug for you and one for each of your friends. Head over to our website at tfcipodcast.com and click on the 21st Century Store button. How do you see the role of building designers and architects and engineers in the future evolving to deal with climate change? I mean, you're right on the sort of front lines here are using technology to understand it. What other roles do you see for architects and building designers? Well,
1: let me just take a little bit of a step to the side. So previously, I was a founding professor at a new university in Dubai called Dubai Institute of Design and Innovation, which was affiliated with MIT. And basically, the idea of the school was creating an architecture school for people who wanted to study architecture but not become architects.
0: That's interesting.
1: So Most of the faculty were all architects, but like the black sheep who like weren't doing architecture. But what you see is that you have people with very sophisticated skills in manufacturing, product design, cultural studies, aesthetics, and this can be applied to any sort of artifact. I just bring that up because I think the big problem isn't the creation of new buildings. It's how do we retrofit the five or six billion existing buildings in the world and so i think i
0: so agree with that
1: i think this is where the huge potential is and as a company that's where we see where we're going like we have to right now like look at new buildings but the actual real potential is in retrofitting or fixing or recycling what already exists so i think i think architects can be like product designers or manufacturing experts or recycling designers And so I I think there's a huge potential beyond what you're learning in school, which for me was like just looking at like OMA's work and trying to copy that 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Even when
0: you were a student.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know what, I'm not sure what students are learning right now. It's probably like grasshopper, like some sort of like-
0: Yeah, no, grasshopper is very big. Yeah. But, But that's actually very powerful for understanding the potential of parametrics. Unfortunately, what I see typically is- It's really cool for making very complicated facades. Yeah. Making designs of great complexity that you couldn't draw ordinarily unless you had that parametric tool, as opposed to reaching in deeper to see what kind of other parameters you could modify to improve the building experience or the energy or, or the embodied carbon, but it will come. I suspect that will come. What skills do you think young designers need to learn to be better equipped to tackle the wicked and super wicked challenges of climate change? I I love those terms wicked and super wicked, by the way, that's just, that's great.
1: (laughs) I love that question. And what I would say is that students need to learn how to be entrepreneurial, just super relentless with carrying through their ideas and also having the ability to work with people who are not necessarily from the same like discipline as you, that you may feel intimidated, but just being able to be reaching out open and also e- being able to continuously learn. So I've been, I was very fortunate as a grad student. I had a couple of professors that were really inspiring and, and were like, hey, Seydra, like the world's really tough. Like this is what you need to do. If someone gives you a like sliver of an opportunity as a young person, you need to take like you need to just like grab that thing and just not let it go. Like you need to make that your own, and so those are the people who actually do something. If if you're easily just like let go or just if you have an opportunity and just take it for granted, it, it you it's you can't do anything. Um, so I don't know if that's a skill, but that would be my advice.
0: I think that's a very wise insight because one of the most difficult things about the challenges we face is. Their complexity um, is the difficulty of dealing with them because of the complexity, and also not just complexity of the content of the problem, but the political and social ramifications attached to it. You really have to have a great deal of diligence and, and, as you say, relentlessness to keep pushing and trying to push the kind of change that you think is going to make a difference. So that, that I think relentlessness is a very, very apt word. How do you think we can speed up the process of mitigation and adaptation? And what are you and your team doing now to sort of move this forward?
1: Have, have you seen that statistic? Like if you look at uh, carbon emissions, if you just look by companies, there's like 100 companies that are responsible for...
0: The majority of the emissions, yes. Yep.
1: That's actually gives me hope, right? It's like a hundred companies are responsible for most of the mess. And so what we do in our business, how we run the company is like right now we are 99% funded from enterprise development for large companies. The future is a subscription software, but our bread and butter is working with large companies and so. If there's a hundred big companies out there that are polluters, right? I I think there's a a massive potential for startups through enterprise projects, for pilot projects to really have
0: impact on those companies. Because
1: what we actually do with our our customers, we're, we're meeting with them every week. We're hearing their requirements. We're pitching like new ideas. We're hearing them, understanding their capabilities. And so really about this like enterprise developments, like how can we, rethink their process or how are they going to rethink their business for the future because you don't invest in an enterprise project cuz you want something tomorrow or like you don't want something immediate it's it's a long term thinking uh like how are you going to adapt your business so i would start there that would be my advice those 100 companies cuz we can If we think of like all the countries in the world, like what are we going to do? That seems like a huge problem. If it's 100 companies, I would just start there.
0: Start there, because you don't have to worry about the politics of the the country. You just go right straight to the company that's producing. And and I've got to say, I don't think there are many companies that set out to be villains and and generating CO2. It wasn't originally part of the plan. Well, we're going to have to produce a lot of CO2. No, it's a byproduct that no one really thought about before. So now they have to figure it out.
1: One example is Exxon Mobil, for instance. They want to transition their company. Did you know they're the largest landowner in the United States?
0: No, but that makes sense given all the um, oil and gas wells that they're so, drilling.
1: So what happens is they they hold they are holding on to many contaminated sites, so they can't sell them. But these are often in the like ports of major cities. So they're yep. and 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 you know what's happened in the last twenty years? All the like poor lands have all been revitalized some sort of urban renewal project so these are like the very like choice pieces of land in these cities often but they can't do anything without it because they need to be um remediated ExxonMobil, yes. they're open to transform themselves they're not trying to be the villain it's just you know what do like, you do uh, i can't believe i said that actually <laughs> I <feel bad. laughs> well i was like making excuses for exxon Mobil. but like you know it makes it makes sense like
0: yeah um yeah. We'll put it this way, whether or not they have consciously or not contributed to climate change, they are by the, the products that they sell. Everyone knows, though, that going forward, all of those companies have got to change. Yeah. They know they have to change. They're going to be changing. They're, they're changing themselves in energy companies Absolutely. as opposed to oil and gas companies. And they want to change. The change is afoot. I think the what you're saying is you want to provide them with the tools— to yep. make that transition possible, so they can go from
1: to give them the evidence right. give them the evidence to make that change
0: but also potentially evidence so they can uh, deploy tools to, to demonstrate that they''re, they're transitioning yeah. so what gives your group your team your company the edge in being successful in, 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 in achieving these goals:
1: That's a good question and I have you seen the movie uh, Moneyball? Yes I feel like we're that company
0: oh really that's that's a cool comparison.
1: We have an amazing team. A year ago, it was just three of us. And now we're 15, if 20 if you count people who are like consultants, we are 15 people and we've totally embraced this hybrid world. So our team is all over the world. And when we recruit people for our team, we just post on Facebook, we post on social media. We actually hunt people down. So if someone posts an interesting blog article that inspires us. We'll like try to talk to them. And we've been able to build just like an amazing team and we work very well.
0: At the very end, we'll get your uh, social media contact. So people listening to this, if they find it inspiring can give you a call. So, but when you say money ball, the, the thing that struck me about that story is it had the idea that no one had really tracked the statistics of baseball before and looked at, the hitting rate of batters in a way that was statistical as opposed to scouts going out and going, that baseball player, I think he has the right stuff to do it. It became a very, very numerical statistical analysis. No one was doing it and yeah, and, yeah. and that's what was the difference. So, so are you, is that what you guys are doing? You're looking at it from the numbers and how the numbers can be crunched effectively and understood?
1: Maybe less scientifically, but what's very important is that we have, a, we have a dna let's say to the company and everyone we bring in needs to have that dna we're very cautious who we hire but everyone is super driven very skilled takes self-initiative and whatever they were doing they were like underutilized their skill set so
0: the dna is a combination from what i'm hearing you say of intelligence Yeah. And being driven
1: innovation for me, the biggest thing is innovators, innovators are the most important thing. Everyone on our team needs to be an innovator and also hungry. Craig is very important. And so what I find is if we, if we, if we get someone from say like Toronto or like, like North America, you're comfortable. People feel very comfortable. But if we're, we're hiring people from say like Sri Lanka, Eastern Europe, this, this is life changing. To be part of our company and so it's like everything is on the line and as founders of a company and i'm sure you know too as a partner and like founder of a architecture firm you know it's like it's life or death like to run a company and so you want everyone to feel like feels and that everyone fe- yeah. has
0: a piece of that and
1: we give yeah. everyone equity so everyone owns a piece of the company it's just amazing what we're able to turn out the amount of innovation amount of features amount of prototypes It's just it's just amazing what we're able to do as a team. And so right now, the right now the question is, you know, how do we scale up this magic? Like if we were to go to thirty, and we have to go in third to thirty in three months, like what we're going to do? So that's that's something we're and
0: and can you keep the same esprit de corps and the same sort of tightness? Yeah. That's a very good question. Yeah. Scaling is in in terms of organization is very difficult. And in fact, for angel and venture capitalists, they look at how the company is going to grow and scale as being a really key determinant of whether or not they want to invest their money in it. Shifting gears a little bit uh, to the bigger picture, what do you think are, what are the most promising policies and strategies or technologies, for that matter, for helping us reduce the environmental harm we're causing and help us repair the damage we're already caused. Like, what bigger picture? What do you think we should be thinking about, architects and designers and and change makers, of the policies that are going to make a real difference?
1: Like we talked about this, Craig. Um, I think a very interesting idea: the idea of a carbon credit system. Caesar from our team, who's the head of product, he he came up with this brilliant. Concept of a carbon trading platform for building owners and landowners. And so basically the idea of a a carbon credit system is say, say if you own a forest, you earn certain credits for sequestering CO2 from the environment. And say if you're a, I don't know, an office building, there's a certain regulation imposed on you by the government to be net zero, but you can't meet it. You're able to buy these credits from the from another person for money and meet that regulation. And so I, I just love this idea because just by just by buying land and planting trees on it, you can make money. Mm-hmm. Or just by doing nothing, yeah. it might be a better solution than cutting down the forest and planting like a palm oil plantation. And so I, I just I just love this idea. I feel like this will make a huge impact. But it
0: so the key idea is an effective way of trading carbon.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this will take yeah, that, government... Rec- that has
0: very low friction.
1: Yeah, this will take government intervention. So
0: the,
1: I don't yeah. know if the government has, governments have willpower to do this, but I think this is the the way to actually pay, to pay, be able to pay for your emissions, to pay for the harm you're
0: causing. Or, or get to it, not, not just pay for it in a punitive way, yeah. but to offset it, to really, truly, if yeah. you cannot help by the business you have of pumping CO2 out... Yeah. That you're at least you're you not something. externalizing it. You're actually yeah. saying no. It's got it's on our books. We've got to cover that. And and the you're talking about a carbon market to make that that transition. Yeah, it shows
1: responsibility yeah. of your company, right? Yeah. So I, I think this idea is fantastic. Now I I know things are in the works. Singapore is is starting a carbon exchange, but obviously this was a cooperation of governments all over the world. So
0: you you, you said one uh, person on your team was actually developing a platform for the trading or is it it's just a comment on how to make better platforms
1: uh we, we mocked up a, a concept on how the platform could work and function
0: um, cool yeah so if you want to invest Craig, do you, do you have a, an image of something that's public now that we could put in the show notes i think that would be very compelling
1: we can we can we can
0: okay yeah if i want to invest okay well let let me know <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, but like, I, I think that's a that's a really key thing. Carbon and how we're gonna deal with it and, and using people's need to benefit for something that otherwise might be a problem is is probably one of the most successful ways to to go forward. I'm in complete agreement with that. What do you think machine learning and big data and artificial intelligence and some of the things that you've talked about in the past what role could they have in leveraging our ability to cope with climate change? What are the big opportunities there?
1: I think just basically two things. Um, the first thing I would say is that it's, it's not a silver bullet. There's not just like one algorithm that's going to solve every problem. And that's what we found out the hard way is that in, in, our, in our work, we have, to, we have to leverage like many types of algorithms, many types of machine learning and AI to solve different problems, different small problems too, even like mundane problems. And that's okay. I think where you run in problems as a developer is it's just trying to solve everything with one solution. But if, I think in terms of their impact, going back to what I, I said earlier is we, we are, we're facing this data overload. There's so much data about the urban environment. And what machine learning can do is they, it's really good at finding patterns to give us insights. And ultimately from those insights, like hopefully we can tell stories that either convince us to take action so yeah, I, I, I think the power of machine learning is actually like in its capacity to do storytelling on, on things that he, the human mind can't process.
0: What do you think um, is missing from the discussion of climate change? Are there any other questions or better questions we should be asking ourselves?
1: I think um, something I feel very deeply about is throughout history, architects have like experimented on the world's core. And I think they need a voice in this conversation. So if, if you look at any sort of innovation in terms of social ho- housing, or like favelas, uh, slums, townships, it's just an architectural experiment on poor people. And I think they need a voice on this because they're the ones who are going to be a- impacted. And I feel like it whenever I see these projects, like 3D printing homes for homeless people, like, yeah, like it has a great intention. But at the end of the day, you're just experimenting on the world's poor, and I I don't feel like it's right. I I, I think what, what's to, a
0: better approach? What what is a more humane approach? Than then? experimenting on that. Yeah, no. Then like I, I suspect the 3D printing is people thinking, well, if we do this, then we can do it at more least, cost effectively, etcetera. Better than what they have. Yeah, right. right. It's it, it's it's patronizing, but it's well intentioned. Yeah. So what what do you think? A, Uh, having the the table then
1: honestly like I I don't have an answer for that yeah I don't know
0: (laughs) but it is a challenge it's a
1: tough one right like I don't have a good answer for that I think I think they need better opportunities they need better opportunities for education mobility you know all of those things that haven't been solved yet that people talk about
0: what about the notion of progress Uh, I think most people who care deeply about our planet implicitly believe in it Otherwise, why bother with what we're doing? Yeah. But what do you think about the idea of progress and the idea that we can make a positive difference in the world?
1: I think that's an interesting question. My parents' generation, the way they grew up was acquiring more, higher salary, more kids, live in the suburb, bigger house, four cars, two houses, three houses. And maybe progress is different. So for me, like, I'm happy, live in an apartment, live in a city, don't own a car. I think I'm actually like happier. I don't have to drive. I can walk everywhere I want. I feel very healthy. I have a job I love. Get to spend a lot of time with my family because I can walk to work. I can walk home. And so maybe, maybe progress is becoming smaller or making things more simple now. Maybe progress right now is about simplifying life.
0: It's not having more. It's having less, but higher quality. Simple, of but better.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, it also makes me think that like, there's some some villages in Japan where the average age is like, in the 70s. And the question is not like, how do we repopulate this town? It's just like, you know, how does this thing take its course? Or what do we do? And, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's the progress now is about simplicity. But, you know, there's, <laughs> there's another side of it too, right? Like Elon Musk guide is no humanity's destiny is to explore. And so the next step is we'll go to the moon, use up all the resources on the moon, then we'll go to Mars, take over Mars, you know, and we'll we'll conquer the universe. So you know, I guess these are two visions of progress, but it, for me it's it's the simplicity route.
0: From all I've read about Elon Musk's uh space adventures is it's not it's not just about getting into space, it's about the fact that we're destroying our world now, we may have to abandon it and go somewhere else, which is a very dark vision of the world um, and very sad. Like the 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 idea of us not being able to fix our world here and going somewhere else. If we can't if we can't deal with an amazing world we have here, how are we going to be able to invent something somewhere else? Like it just it strikes me as as almost absurd. But what do you think? Can we do it? Are we going to be able to? To really deal with these huge challenges in in front of us, climate change and and the implications for adapting to it and regenerating the damage we've done, what 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 do you think? And what gives you hope?
1: Okay, this is going to sound cheesy, but I think I think everyone should have the opportunity to teach because anytime you need inspiration, just work with students. So I I, I had just had the amazing opportunity to be part of like a new university um, from day one, just inventing the curriculum. Yeah, we had no idea what's going to come out of this thing. Like we we had a crazy idea. We're going to teach the students how to be a fashion designer and a like industrial designer at the same time or like a multimedia designer and a product designer. So we have no idea what's going to come out of it. But you see in the students, they they feel this consciousness. They feel the weight of the future. And in their projects, it's very optimistic. They are finding solutions, finding ingenious solutions. So I, I have hope. I have a lot of hope about... The next generation, even though I was a student not too long ago, but I I do have a lot of hope of this next generation. And I also think if you see what's happening now, the amount of political turmoil, all the absurdity that's happening in the world now, young people are looking at that. And I think the world that they're going to create is going to be totally different. I was just watching this documentary on Apollo 11 last night. And for that generation, so this is the generation, these are the kids of the people who were part of World War II, right? It did this. They came together, they did something, just for a moment, the whole world came together and had this amazing accomplishment. But now like things are too cynical that even something like that could happen. But I still have hope, like this next generation, maybe they're just sick, sick of what's happening, what they see.
0: Well, I think that's very hopeful and, and I'd, I, I'm, I agree. I'm, I'm teaching right now as well. And it, it's one of the wonderful things about teaching is being able to look out at the future. And there's so much optimism and so much interest in make a difference. And when I was a student, this was not a challenge. Like the world was not coming apart. Yeah. Um, in an environmental way, there's pollution and so forth, but there was not an existential threat, the way there is now. And these students now, in in the architecture students that I'm teaching or or leading the seminar on, I mean, they're, they're facing huge existential challenges and yet they're hopeful yeah. and they are looking at how they can make a difference. It's very, very inspiring. So what advice would you offer to them, to our listeners and to those students about what they can do to be part of making a difference and meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative and maintaining hope? What advice would you have for them?
1: Yeah, like I, I think as a student, explore not just what you find interesting at the moment, just just explore everything, just give everything a try and use that time to really explore and also meet people, meet people with different interests from different fields of study and make, make a network. But at a certain point when you mature, you, you need to have a mission in life. And I used to think, you know, to have a, have a company, you, you need to adapt all the time. Maybe you just like try stuff, try something else, try something else, try things else. But if I look at, look at our company, I, I made the initial prototype of our system in 2014, seven years ago. And the, what we have today, it's it's like not the idea is not that different. We like stuck to it. You just have to be relentless to actually make it happen. So you need to have a mission, but really, really take advantage of your education. It's a wonderful time. It's a it's a massive privilege, and it's not about getting grades. It's just about your exploration and self development and like building ideas about the world. Um, one thing I think about too is often when I was a student, we had to read a lot of books. And I was like, why am I reading this? This doesn't make any sense to me. But now when I look back, now that I'm older, actually like a lot of the lessons make a lot of sense once you have life experience. So the point of the education is just to make you aware things are out there, but learning continues your entire life. So I don't know if that's advice. But no, no,
0: that, I, I think that's really inspiring advice. I think yeah. very, very helpful. Thanks, great. Finally, I'd like to ask you three rapid-fire questions to wrap up the interview that I ask all my guests. And the first question is, speaking of books, what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to other people?
1: I normally read really dry scientific papers, but to run a startup, I'm, I'm reading The Art of War. And it's just the gift that keeps giving. It really teaches you how to deal with very complicated situations in life, like constantly. So... That would be a book I recommend everyone reads and keeps reading.
0: Okay, that's cool. And second question, if you had the power to implement one change or one innovation or one policy in communities and cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly reducing CO2 emissions or helping adapt to climate change, what would it be and why?
1: We talked about this, but it would be the carbon credit exchange. If every country, every community, every city could buy into this, we could solve a lot of the problems. But also, I think I think what is so amazing about that concept is even if you're a polluter, you're exercising responsibility for what you've done. And if you're someone who is, say, investing in renewables or reforestation, there's an economic incentive there. So I think it's just a fantastic idea but it's really gonna take a huge willpower that I don't think currently exists to make something like this happen. But I think this would solve the problem.
0: Yeah, I think that is a really, really smart and effective tool. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing how you guys develop that. Yeah. Maybe that we'll do a second podcast that just talks about that that piece on, the, on our clean tech platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the third question, final question, if you could publish a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times, or the Globe and Mail, or the equivalent in Singapore, of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be?
1: This will sound very corny, also, but I would I would just thank my parents because um, I've had so much confidence in life to make mistakes, to fail, uh, to apply to a grad school. You know, I, I got to go to MIT, but if I my my parents weren't able to support me. Like not, I never had to worry about being in debt or anything. I don't. I don't think I'd be as willing to take these types of risks on in life. I had the opportunity to work with Mark Burry, who is the chief architect of the Sagrada Familia. So I got the opportunity to go there, but I just had like two thousand dollars in my bank account when I flew to Australia. It was insane, and I didn't tell my parents, but I just I was able to take that risk because I knew like if anything went wrong, they would have my back. And so I, I just I would thank my parents for all these this this like confidence um because it's just you know i i know a lot of people don't aren't as aren't as fortunate as me to be able to take those kind of risks in life so yeah i would i would think that i know i know it's corny but no
0: you know what i looked
1: at the question but i was like that that's what i would do
0: that is lovely and i don't think it's corny at all i think it's very honest and very few people are willing to uh, be so personal I think you should thank your parents yeah, and yeah. you should definitely, will definitely make sure your parents get a copy of this podcast. Yeah, Because I I think a lot of children wish they told their parents that too late when it's not possible anymore. So either get this podcast to them or give them a call tonight and tell them what you think. This, this has been a, such a pleasure. And I'm going to ask a, a, a closing question. Is there anything... That you would like to ask of our listeners, other than that they should call their parents.
1: Yeah, I think I think if they're interested in our in me and our and our company and what we're doing, uh, we just published two white papers about two projects. One is about the fifteen minute city, and the other is about our daylight autonomy scoring system. And so these are both on our website. So if they want to learn more about that, they can check out our website and read about our work. And we would just love to hear their feedback and thoughts on this and how we how we can tackle this problem more
0: okay we'll publish the website um url in the show notes but if it's not too complicated why don't you just read it out and then as they're listening, they may type it in what is the what's the url for that
1: yeah so our our website is www.digitalbluefoam.com that's easy yeah
0: finally how can listeners reach you what's the best way to connect with you guys
1: you can either reach us reach us through our website so digitalbluefoam.com, or just follow us on social media, either Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. It's all digitalbluefoam. Right. And there's a contact form on our website if you want to reach out. We're happy to have a call. Perfect. Yeah.
0: We'll, we'll put those in the show notes. Joe, this has been a real pleasure talking with you.
1: Craig, this is so fun. I had so much fun.
0: I think what you're doing is really, really important. And I think it will have significant significant consequences bear some really important fruit. It means a lot. So thank you very much for your time. It's been a, it's a huge pleasure. Thanks so much, Craig. Cheers. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash This podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So, if you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.